Hello, everyone, and welcome to Origins of AI, the first in UBS's Summer of Artificial Intelligence virtual event series. In this four-part event series, we're going to bring you with us on a journey into the world of artificial intelligence, tracing its remarkable origins, envisioning its awe-inspiring future, and unraveling the incredible ways that humans like us will wield its power. Uh, over the course of this series, we'll be asking experts in the field of AI if it's going to fuel the next great surge in productivity, innovation, and economic prosperity, or, and here's the question that everybody wants to know, is it the next great threat to jobs, industries, and perhaps even humanity itself? I'm a little bit of a sci-fi nerd, so I, of course I have a lot of questions today for Dr. Jules White. He's Associate Dean for Strategic Learning Programs, and he's also an Associate Professor of Computer Science at Vanderbilt University. So Jules, really nice to have you here in the studio. Yes. It's, what a topic. Yeah, well, it's it's exciting times. I think it's, you know, I would say it's probably the most exciting time of my career seeing what's happening right now, particularly after ChatGPT was released right, you know, before the, the, the holidays uh, New Year. Last yeah, year. yeah. And that's when it really started being discussed uh, at the dinner tables and with friends and colleagues around the office. Yeah, I mean, pretty much overnight, you know, well, of course, the, the starting conversation was, oh my gosh, everybody is going to cheat on your exam next, you know, next year. Are you ready for that? Right. You know? and, and it was amazing because it was some of my you know, nephews who were in high school who were talking about this. And so I was hearing about it. But it, it, it really was just you know, like um, we all woke up one morning and there was a package on our door for, for the holidays. And we opened it up and it's an iPhone from 40 years in the future with every single app and, and piece of AI on it. And we all had access to it overnight. You know, so it was, it was really a, sort of an exciting time, but I think also a scary time for yeah, people. Yeah, I, I had to go to, a, to Google and look up what ChatGPT was. I'd heard it and I, I had no idea. And then of course you start getting down the rabbit hole of what it is. Um, and then it just becomes this, more questions started happening in my own head. So that's why we're so happy to have you here because we have lots of questions. So let me, let me start maybe by level setting with you. What, what is artificial intelligence? That, that word, that term gets thrown around a lot, AI, artificial intelligence. So what is it and what is it not? Maybe even, even more of a pertinent part of that question. Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. Well, I think when you see artificial intelligence in the news today, mm -hmm. And I think what we're going to be seeing going for the next five to 10 years is really looking at large language models. This is what ChatGPT is. And I've got an example of this, which I think would really help to sort sure. of set, you know, and understand what does it mean to be, you know, intelligent? What does artificial intelligence mean? So I've taken a task that would be, I think, difficult for a human or to hire a human to do, and particularly have a human do it quickly. And this is kind of showing the intelligence um, piece of this. So, I went to ChatGPT and I asked it, create a meal plan for me that basically combines um, food from Uzbekistan and Ethiopia, but at the same time is keto, fits within 2,000 calories. And I mean, this is not an easy thing to do, right? If I had to go and do this myself, it would take a lot of work to, right. to try to create this. A lot of searching on, uh, on the internet for this and yeah. putting it all together yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And if you gave somebody this task, you know, that's not an easy task to go and, um, and do. And so if you look at it, what its answer is, it's pretty amazing. Um, if you do this, it basically says, okay, you know, here is a, uh, a meal plan. Um, and then one of the things you'll notice in the meal plan is that basically I asked it, you know, pick ingredients that are easy to get from the average U.S. grocery store. And one of the things it does is in the meal plan, it says, okay, you're going to have these eggs with berbere spice. 
And then it basically says in parentheses, you know, this is made with cumin and coriander and other spices, and it signals to you and it understands the concept of what can you get from your average U.S. grocery store. So that's a really complex thing. That's a sort of an intelligent sort of analysis of my question, my problem that I'm trying to solve, and then it's helping me to solve it. Now, if we take this further, and, and this is kind of where we really get into the intelligence, as I started thinking about, well, what else would I need to go with this meal plan? And I have a nine-year-old, and he's a pretty adventurous eater, but sometimes the challenge is just getting him to try the first dish. So I thought, well, is there a way that I can use ChatGPT to help me solve this problem, which is not easy at all? So I said, you know, ChatGPT. Every parent can agree with that, yeah, by the way. absolutely. <laughs> so, so I thought, well, what does my son love that maybe would get him inspired to try this? And I said, well, he loves Pokemon. So maybe I could create some stories that would make him excited to try the food. And so I said, ChatGPT, basically, can you create a series of Pokemon battle stories that go along with each dish? And each of the, the stories should end with a cliffhanger so that he gets excited to try the dishes. Now, this is a really complex task, right? I'm asking it, basically, to inspire my nine-year-old to eat a series of dishes that are from Ethiopia and Uzbekistan um, and are possibly keto, right? Um, and so it basically says it creates a whole battle story around Pokemon and this dish. And this first story that it creates is all about um, this Berber dragon, and it blows this spicy um, um, fire across the eggs. And then it challenges my son. It says, can you help the, you know, defeat the Berber dragon by trying this you know, spicy breakfast? That's a really complex concept. And the fact that I can just go and ask this simple question. And you know, I started with one paragraph, which is give me this, this um, meal plan that's Uzbekistan and keto. And then I take it and I say, now craft it and turn it into battle stories with Pokemon. That's a really complex task that, you know, I would have a hard time writing the Pokemon battle stories. I might be able to figure out the, the <laughs> keto, Uzbekistan, Ethiopian cuisine. But, you know, then I thought, well, let's take it even further. What else can this intelligence do? So I said, well, what else do we do at the dinner table that might be fun for my nine-year-old? And I thought, well, a lot of times we talk about what he's learning at school. And one of the things he really loves at school is math. And he loves math games on the iPad. And I thought, well, how cool would it be if I could get ChatGPT to turn these dishes and these Pokemon battle stories into a math game for him? And so I said, basically, ChatGPT, I want you to play a math game with my nine-year-old based on nutrition and fractions. And so you're going to ask my nine-year-old questions. Basically, I'm asking you know, it to go and take the lead and start asking him questions and then tell him how he's doing. Um, on these questions, and it goes and it asks him this question. It basically asks him this question about, you know, how much should each um, of these characters get in terms of, of this dish that's been created? And so that's kind of amazing. It's, it's, it's gone off and created this whole game um, for my nine-year-old. Now, what's interesting then is it stops and it waits. Mm -hmm. It's waiting for his answer. And so it's now asking us questions, and it waits for him to put in one six, which is the answer to this question. And then it goes through and it works out the math for him. It explains it all to him. And again, all of this was just me going in and saying, here's a paragraph of text. Go and do something. You know, go and create this meal plan. And then I said, well, now take it and adapt it in this other way. And I gave it some more text to do that. And then I've got it now to the point where it's asking my nine-year-old questions, which is great. Um, and I've actually written a whole, by doing this, I've basically written a whole game within um, ChatGPT for my son. But now I thought, well, of course, as a computer scientist, I need to go the rest of the way. And, and so I said, well, let's turn this into actual computer software. And so I gave ChatGPT 
some specifications around what I want the software to do and how I want it implemented. And it went off and generated Python code, which is a programming language, in order to turn this entire math game into a web application that my son could play on an iPad. So, you know, that's intelligence, right? In mm -hmm. terms of, I think it had made us rethink what computers are capable of mm -hmm. and what in, you know, how we measure intelligence. I think that's one of the challenges is a lot of our measures of intelligence were like, could you do things like this before? And suddenly we have a tool that can, but I don't think it quite gets, you know, we have this, this other concept of like, is it gonna go and take over the world? And I don't think we're getting there, but, but we have this concept of intelligence in what it's doing. Mm. And it's solving a really complicated problem and finding a single human being who could do that. Um, I know in Nashville it'd be hard. Maybe New York it would be easier to find that person. I'm not sure. It might I don't be know. difficult. But, <laughs> it it, be. but it's pretty fast at doing it. And it may not be perfect, but that's kind of the beauty of it is you is I could go and work back and forth with it and refine it and interact with this intelligence to sort of, you know, unleash yeah. my creativity on this problem. I have so many follow-up questions for you on this example. And I of course I'm sitting here. This is not the first time I've seen these slides that you sent over to us, which is fantastic. What I really I think what struck me even more than anything else was the fact that it knew how to ask the appropriate questions for a nine-year-old, which anybody who's been around children knows the difference between eight, nine, seven, eight, it's significant in their learning and the way yeah. that they use words and the way they understand concepts. So it understood how to speak and ask that or, or give it an example to a nine-year-old. Yeah. Pretty absolutely. incredible. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and it could be a nine-year-old or it could be you know, um, a 44-year-old mm -hmm. or a 90-year-old, you know, and there's, you, you can, it, it's a, it's ability to target a different audience is really fascinating. Let me, let me, let me take one step back for a second. Yeah. So the, the term artificial intelligence is not a new term. People who may be hearing about it, you know, more recently, it's been around since the, you know, 50s and 60s. It was actually coined by um, a gentleman named John McCarthy in Dartmouth who led a study, and he used it for the first time. But many of us might even remember the story of Alan Turing from World War II, who built the Bomba machine that actually defeated the Nazi code Enigma to help end the war. And that some people say that is sort of the first artificial intelligence machine that was built by a human. So this goes back a long ways. So let's go now, fast forward to ChatGPT, Clearly from the example, we could see how incredible it is, but how much more incredible is it really than some of the previous or more recent artificial intelligence we've seen? Well, I think personally, so I think you'd get different perspectives on it, but for me personally, I think it's just a tremendous leap, because, mm -hmm. and I think it was a leap that um, was unexpected. So, so we certainly you know, have seen a huge advance in artificial intelligence over time, but the thing about ChatGPT was that it was able to do things that were unexpected. And I think that's really a key thing, is that we had known about the, the underlying technology behind it. It had been around for a while. It's been around for at least you know, um, you know, five, 10 years, depending on what you view as the underlying technology. So we really knew how to build these things, but we never scaled them up this big. And when we scaled it up this big, you know, suddenly we had it able to do things like create the Uzbekistan, you know, Ethiopian keto uh, meal plan, and then later turn it into a Pokemon set of battle stories. I mean, that's a complex topic, and to be able to do something like that, we wouldn't have expected it. Or being able to go and generate the software for it, or you know, go off and do things like help, you know, enable drug discovery, or all of these other things. So I think those types of like, you know, really emergent use cases we weren't expecting. You know, the, the analogy I give is it was kind of like 
as a computer scientist, I'm always staring out and saying, five to 10 years in the future, we're going to have these amazing things. We're going to be out there in the stars. Right. And then I finished, you know, I took my eye out of the telescope and turned around, and oh, there's a UFO behind me. And then we all ran over to it, and we started, like, kicking it. And oh, a light turned on. I didn't know that was there. And that, that's almost the feeling of it. It's like this discovery of, like, the UFO has landed behind us, mm -hmm. and we just didn't realize it was there. Yeah. And, and so now we're in the process of really discovering all of these capabilities. So you don't think... It, do you think it's overhyped? Do you think ChatGPT itself is overhyped? It's just getting a lot of press. But people sometimes say, well, the press is just trying to sell ads. You know, they're trying to sell commercial time. But well, is it, is it overhyped? I think that it's underhyped. Mm -hmm. and oh, really? Oh, significantly. So I think it's, it's absolutely the most impactful, transformative thing that I've seen in my career. And I doubt I will see something as transformative in my lifetime. Wow. And so... I think, you know, at the beginning, I felt like, you know, um, I was excited when I would go to the news and there would be another discussion of, oh, I asked this question and it gave this bad example. Um, what we're seeing a lot of is it's not a tool that's instantly, it appears like you can go ask it anything and it works well, but you really have to understand how to use the tool to tap into these things. So a lot of what we're seeing in the news is unskilled use and then a discussion of the mistakes that were made from the unskilled usage. But when you get people who really understand how to take it and do interesting things with it and really tap into those capabilities, you get transformative uses that were not seen discussed um, in significant detail in the news. So for the first, I would say, two to three months, I thought, I'm so excited that they're making these mistakes because it's a little bit longer that I can sprint ahead before this tidal wave hits everybody. But then I, over the last month or two, I've started to get upset because I'm worried that we will not properly take advantage of this or we'll regulate it in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is a, just a fundamental competitive advantage, not only for our uh, um, you know, individual organizations, but for universities, countries. I mean, this is something that everybody's going to need to take advantage of to be able to be competitive in the next you know, 10 years or so. Yeah, sometimes we get into the habit of shoot first and ask questions later, and all of a sudden there's regulations on something that people don't truly have an, a knowledge of just in that moment to make the proper decisions on yes. whether it should be regulated or not. Obviously, there, that's a big question that we'll, I'm sure, hear a lot more about in the future. Yeah. But let's, let's kind of stick with where we are today with ChatGPT. Um, you know, there's the old rule of garbage in, garbage out, and it's, you know, obviously if you put bad information in to a computer, it's going to spit bad information back out to a user who's asking it a question that another human put in, say the answer was incorrect or slightly off or even slightly malicious. We know yep. there's a lot of bad actors in the world who try to scam, you know, grandmas and grandpas and parents about giving money. There's all those stories we know. You know you're a cybersecurity expert as well. So how risky is ChatGPT with the garbage in, garbage out? You know, especially these language, these large language models. Well, I, I think that the, the first thing to think about is what they're meant to do. So basically what ChatGPT and other large language models were taught is they were given a sentence like, Mary had a little, and they would chop off the last word, and they would try to get it to predict lamb. Mm -hmm. And then they would say, you know, Mary had a little lamb, and they would try to get it to predict its. And so it, it was learning to predict the next word in the sentence. And so the way that it does that is it learns patterns in our language. And so it learns that when it says Mary had a little, it needs to you know, say lamb as the next word. Mm -hmm. Now, it's, it's sort of incredible and mind-blowing that this idea of predicting the next word and training it to do that can lead to all of these uh, bigger things. But if you think about it then, if you go and ask the question, who was the first president of the United States? 
Well, that's probably a pattern that it learned and has seen, and so it knows what the words should look like that come after that, you know, and it will start producing information that looks right. Um, but it was never meant to produce facts. It was meant to predict the next word in a mm -hmm. sentence. But miraculously, you know, that fundamental capability leads to this ability to do the, the um, you know, play a game with my nine-year-old and explain the math to him. And, and so um, the key thing is, is that really what it was learning is patterns. Now, if we use it incorrectly and we use it to try to be a source of truth, that's not really what it was meant for. Mm -hmm. And so then you do run into that garbage in, garbage out. If you like go and in, in, in delve into some area of information, it doesn't have a lot of information. It may not produce a good result. So one example with software is if you take a programming language that's more obscure and it may not have seen a lot of good examples of programs in that, it's not likely to produce as good of software. If you go and you take a language that it's seen a whole lot of times and seen lots of good examples of good programs, it's gonna be more likely to produce a better example, you know, a better output for you if you tell it to solve a problem. Um, but the other thing is, is that people miss is you can give it new information and ask it to reason on just the new information. So take its pattern and its solving and, and other intelligent capabilities and apply it to new information. So I can go and I can say, and this is one of my favorites, I can go and say, Act as my personal assistant. I'm going to cut and paste a long email chain to you that was set, that took place over the weekend, and you're going to summarize the action items for me. And then if I ask you about one of those action items, you're going to summarize the conversation about that, around that action item. So it doesn't have access to my email. It wasn't mm -hmm. trained on it. But I can then cut and paste my email chain. It can analyze it using all that pattern um, you know, uh, analysis capability. It can extract action items. And then it can tell me, here's what you need to know that you missed over the weekend when right. you were offline. So I did something similar as we were preparing for today where I said, act as a video chat show host, which I figured was a good way to explain yeah. what this was, and write me an introduction to a, the, a first part of a series on artificial intelligence. And it spit out a really beautifully written, grammatically correct <laughs> introduction yeah. we did not use it today by the way it was all <laughs> written by humans but it was there and so uh, clearly I think to myself and this goes back to maybe you as a professor now put your professor hat back on with students do you ever fear that it could say act as a junior in college at Vanderbilt University and write me a you know this many page term paper on this topic and it could do that well it absolutely can do it and and I think um but I think that's, that's what we have to realize as educators is we have to reinvent um, how we do education. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to have to account for this. Now, one way, of course, is to just say, well, we're going to you know, tell people not to use it. And I think that's uh, my personal perspective is that's the wrong way because we know this is going to be an important tool for people going forward. Sure. So we really want to teach them to embrace it, but then redesign our curriculum to account for it. And that's not easy. And what, how you do that in different disciplines is going to be a really hard challenge, but it can do interesting things that allow me to be a better educator. So I'm going to give you an example. Sure. It's a personalized education, right? If I have um, you know, enough resources, I can hire a tutor for my child who can generate the Pokemon math problems and that target exactly the things that he might need to learn next. If I don't have those resources, I can't do that. But if you're a teacher now, you can go and generate um, you know, problems, explanations, exercises, things that are targeting individual children very fast. I can go into my cybersecurity class and I can do amazing simulations where I say, act as a computer that's been the victim of a cyber attack. Hmm. 
I, you're gonna, I'm gonna type in commands and you're gonna output what those commands would produce. And it can simulate that. And it can simulate a computer. Wow. And, I, and, and I couldn't have programmed that. If I'd had like you know, years and a huge budget, maybe I could have programmed it. I certainly couldn't have programmed something with that level of flexibility, but I can go into my class in the fall and take that in. So we're gonna have to really think about, you know, one, how we adapt our curriculum and use it intentionally, but also we're gonna have to think about how do we you know, take advantage of these really exciting new opportunities with it for personalized education, for new types of assignments. And I'll give you a, a fun one that I did the other day as an example for an assignment, is have assignments where you have the students go and fact check what ChatGPT generates and go have to find real sources in the library to fact check it. So as for a fun one, I had it, uh, I said, ChatGPT, translate computer science into Babylonian cuneiform. <laughs> then give it to students and say, now you go and fact check if, awesome. it's, if it's translation. And it translated it, it said computer science didn't exist, but I'm gonna use transliteration to do it. And then it produced the Babylonian cuneiform. I have no idea if it's right, but I could go and give that to students and say, go figure it out and, and give me an explanation. So smart, that's yes. a great way to do it. And, and, and you know what, Jules, the way you're describing it, I could see your excitement in being able to now sort of become creative yet again in how you teach, you know, maybe for the first couple of years of your career, you kind of get into a path where you're teaching and you're lecturing and people, students are reading textbooks. Now you're having to rethink. I think that's a really, and that's something that a computer, maybe not yet anyway, but can't really do, yeah. is learn how to be humanly creative. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think it is an amplifier for human creativity. Right. You can go and do these things. So I have, a, I have a colleague, Holly Tucker, who's in French, and she was having her students go and generate dialogues between characters from the French Revolution using ChatGPT and then doing an analysis of like how historically accurate they are. Were they talking about the right issues mm. in the right you know, tone with the right words? I mean, that's a fascinating it example. Is. It would be fun as a student to go and try to do that. That's and, right. You know, if you're an English lit major, you know, write me a, uh, you know, a version of Canterbury Tales by Chaucer in the original you know, Middle English that they use and, and see if it's accurate and find out if it works. There's a, there's a million things you can potentially do to yeah. enhance the experience of the student. And in some ways, it's even a better educational experience. Uh, absolutely. It's something very interactive, and students can drive it themselves right. and adapt it. It's fascinating. So, you know, what I think, obviously, there's this sort of fear that's also built into technology. I imagine that the first time somebody saw the light bulb come on, you know, a hundred, you know, over a century ago, people were scared because it's new and it's different and they don't understand it. But now it's so, there's lights everywhere in our lives and there's, you know, a million things that plug in. I'm imagining that you probably get a lot of questions about this. I talk about it with friends and colleagues. We're always fearful of what could these technologies, what could this artificial intelligence do that could potentially be harmful? Yep. What are some of the fears that you know are out there? And allay those for us if you can. Yeah, well, I think a lot of the fears, um, you know, go back to my nine-year-old. It's, it's a, you know, he says, you know, I'm scared of, 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 you know, what's out there in the dark, right? Maybe there's a monster out there or something like that. Um, but then we go to Central Park and he climbs up a 15 foot tall rock with no fear of falling off behind him. And so I think there's, and there is a real risk there, mm. right? And so I think a lot of what we're discussing is the things that aren't maybe the real risks. I think real risks are things like when people use the tool inappropriately and file a lawsuit without fact checking it, right? Right. Or, um, you know, there's been examples where faculty members have gone and cut and pasted assignments into ChatGPT and said, did you write this? And it'll tell you randomly that it wrote it or not wrote it, who knows? And that's like an inappropriate use, but it has harm in the real world. And so I think one of the real risks right now is because there's not enough people that understand how it works, 
you know, that people are going to go and use it inappropriately in all kinds of contexts, legal contexts, educational contexts, you know, making financial decisions, things like that. So I think there's real risk in that area, and we need to plug that gap, you know, that knowledge gap with education. I think another one that is real is we live in a world where we look at the content of messages, and does it look real, does it look authentic? And this is a tool that is specifically designed to generate things that look very authentic, mm -hmm. but ne aren't necessarily are. Right, we get a lot of those emails, all of us, every single day at work, in our personal lives, that look like they could be legitimate, and then, of course, you look at various links, or if you happen to click on it, you're gonna get some malware or spamware or something like that. So that's a legitimate fear that many of us have every single day. Uh, absolutely, and now, You've got, it's going to be, it, it will certainly be a real risk, and that, that is a concern. Now, are AI robots going to take over the world? Well, I'm not Isn't worried about Isn't that the question it. that we always hear? <laughs> yeah, we right. do. <laughs> and, you know, I think there's, there's a belief, like, you know, it, different people sort of, you know, theorize that that's going to happen for different reasons. Um, I'm not a believer in that. I've seen, you know, you know, people say, well, you look at the curve and the exponential increase, like, we're only going to go up from here. But sometimes people look at the market and they say, well, it's only going to go up from here. And then we know that that isn't always true. Right. And I mean, really, we're probably going to have fits and starts and things. And there's going to be unexpected difficulties and challenges. Sure. And so I don't look at it as being we're that much closer to AI, you know, robots taking over the world. Um, That's the singularity term, yes. correct? Like the un irreversible movement ahead where the computers can start actually programming themselves. Uh, and, uh, it's, and you can't go backwards after that. That's what people fear. That's what people fear. And, but I don't think people should fear about that. I think they should worry about things that are real, which is misuse, disinformation, sure. which are typically human-driven things, right? And not may, the AI-driven. And I may have actually skipped this. I thought I, I planned to ask you this earlier on. When it comes to ChatGPT, who is programming it? Where is it getting its information from? Well, it was trained, and then it has basically this pattern. You know, the way I think of it is more like um, it's like a new computer architecture that's mm -hmm. released. And when you talk to ChatGPT, you're essentially you know, doing what's called a prompt, which is the statements you make to ChatGPT are prompts. And when you um, give it prompts, you're essentially programming it. You can tell it to do things. You can say, act as my personal assistant, analyze my email, summarize it. When you're doing that, you're actually programming. And this is one of the interesting things is that um, everybody is going to be able to program with ChatGPT. So if you go in and you tell it to act as your personal assistant and you spell it out like you might to your personal assistant, it's going to basically follow the instructions that you're given. And there's a lot of work that's been done to make it so it follows instructions really well and other tools that are coming out do the same thing. And so essentially you're programming it through the prompts or the statements that you're providing to it. You can get it to do, say just about anything you want. Um, you can get it to do sort of incredible things like right. the meal plan. And that's all a form of programming. So you really you're the driver in the driver's seat with right. it. Great. I, I, have, I have a final question for you, but I do have a couple of audience questions that came in. We've got a couple minutes left here. And one of them says, what are the privacy implications of, of artificial intelligence? I'm assuming in general, but even with ChatGPT. Well, I think, I think we're kind of at a place that's a little bit like we were with the cloud when it first came out. You know, initially, everybody said, I'm not going to put my data there. You know, I, I would never let my private you know, customer data or anything else live in the cloud. And we know all how that turned out, that's right? That's right. Once we got the right illegal we're in it all day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, all, all of our data is there. So that's right. Once we got the right legal, legal agreements in place, and you know, I think that's what we're going to see is, is um, the, the companies that are providing the models and providing access to the service are going to provide the right legal guarantees that companies need to be um, respectful and put that in. I also think that those legal guarantees are going to need things like 
requirements like we're not going to train on your data. Right. You know, we're not going to bake that in. All of those types of things are going to have to go in there. And I think they will go in there. And I think those companies that want to um, build these platforms on this, this artificial intelligence capability are going to have to have them in there to be competitive. Right. I want to ask you one other one before I get to it. We, we actually received a number of them, so thanks everybody for sending in your questions. Um, and I think this one kind of piggybacks a little bit on the bad actors question, but this goes a little, a little deep, more deeply. How do we know that malevolent actors couldn't use the technology to manipulate things like elections or even slander individuals or slander a community of people um, or even a, a slander a religion, for example? I sort of expanded a little bit on that question. But how do we know that it we, that or do we know that it can't do that or we're not recognize that? Well, I think we have to start by saying realizing that it doesn't do it. The user does it. There you go. And so those the people that are going to do that are already doing it today, probably. Now, they could use this tool potentially to do it at a larger scale or more convincingly. And, and so I think it's also equally important that we use the tool for defensive and good purposes as well. Um, I think from a cybersecurity standpoint, it's really, really important that we use it defensively because if, if it's going to be used offensively, that's going to be a big problem if we don't you know, ourselves take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, people could use it maliciously and they will use it maliciously. Um, but I think that's that if you took the tool away, they would still be doing it. The tool itself is not doing that. Okay, gotcha. That there's ways to do that. People have manipulating elections potentially for decades uh, yes. within it was just paper. So, okay. Thank you for that answer. I think that puts our minds at ease a little bit. Something else that came in, and I have to ask this because I've seen those um, websites where you can plug in sort of like Jack GPT, but it puts out a, a piece of art, for example, digital art. Give me a Renaissance-style painting with three dogs on a golf course using a Frisbee instead of a golf ball under a purple sky. And then it'll provide many examples, and you get to choose your favorite version of that. And it does a pretty convincing job. So is this going to be putting artists out of work, and how will we know what's real art and what's computer-generated? It's a, sort of an existential question in some ways. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, this is an interesting one for me. So before I, I was uh, a majored in computer science, I started off as a visual arts major. And I've always I had an art career earlier um, in my uh, life. And, and so I've never felt threatened by it. I've always thought it was like, it's, it's like a new brush that I've got that I can do interesting things with. Mm -hmm. um, when I look at what it produces, I don't get that excited about the images. Like, they, I think in many cases, they are sort of interesting and exciting. But, you know, the type of art I like to produce and the type of art I like to consume and hang on my wall, and, and you missing that physicality of it, you know, I think that I don't see it as a, as a, as a big risk. Now, there are certain people I think it absolutely may be, you know, um, challenging to, mm -hmm. but I think we're going to adapt, and I think it's going to um, be probably a new medium that artists use, as well as a, a way that, you know, makes it so that something that someone was sort of uniquely capable of generating visuals like that, it's going to be di more difficult to be uniquely capable of those visuals right. in the future. It's interesting. I remember when I, was a, when I was younger, my mom took a calligraphy course, and she was writing wedding invitations and things with calligraphy, and it was, it's a beautiful art form. It would take her hours to do, days sometimes to do invitations. Then, of course, the printer comes out, and everybody's printing, but it's like people now are sort of going back to the the joy and beauty of a handwritten invitation or note, and especially using someone who has those calligraphy skills. I said to my mom, like, mom, you might be going back into business after, you know, 30 or 40 years of computers taking that job away from you because people are sort of going back in. So perhaps it's something similar with the visual artists that are out there or augmenting their work by using 
technology. I completely agree. I think it will have hopefully more appreciation for the actual piece of art on the wall as opposed to the you know digital image of it. Yes, you know? exactly. So I, I certainly hope that's the case. Jules, I could sit here all day with you, and I, but I know our audience probably has uh, other things to do for the day. So before, I want to wrap up with you now, but before we do, it's a question we're going to ask all of the guests in the upcoming series. The question is, what excites you most about the future of AI? Well, I, I think the thing that excites me the most about the future of AI is the um, potential to augment human creativity. So I can go in and I can you know, say, I want to explore what it looks like for Ethiopian and Uzbekistani you know, cuisine to come together and make it look keto, to turn it into a math game. Like that type of thing, I fundamentally wouldn't have been capable of doing. You know, I wouldn't have had the time, the resources to explore something like that. But now with a tool like this, I can go and explore and have creative sort of exploration that I couldn't do before. And so I, I, what makes me excited is all of the creative ideas that are going to come out of this, all of the things that I'm going to be able to create and build and work with that I wouldn't have been able to before. And I think that's the thing that gets me really excited is like, what are all the, the you know, and again, it's not AI doing these things, it's mm -hmm. human creativity driving these things. So I look at it as an amplifier of human creativity and I'm excited about what that, that amplification is going to do, what yeah. it's going to create. Yeah, it's just another cog in the wheel of what humans have done for hundreds of thousands of years to continue to grow and become what we are today and who knows what it'll look like 100,000 years from now yeah. using the technology and starting from here. This is sort of like a new starting point in some ways. That's a great, it's a new starting point. Yeah. It's gonna be exciting to see what comes yeah. next. Well, I think the first thing I'm gonna do after this is tell ChatGPT to act as my nutritionist, tell me how I can lose 10 pounds by Labor Day but still eat barbecue every weekend. Yeah. I'll let you know what it says. Uh, tell, please do. <laughs> uh, Jules, this, this is great. I'm, I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for coming up from Nashville to be with us in our New York studios. Great to see you. Thanks for everything today. Good stuff. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I really, My really pleasure. appreciate it. My pleasure. Our pleasure as a firm. And thank you all for joining us. Uh, this is only part one of our four-part series. We've got some amazing discussions coming. If you thought this one was a, was a good way to get started, you're not wrong. There's great more content coming in this artificial intelligence virtual event series. And we're putting up again the URLs for Jules's Coursera course, Prompt Engineering for ChatGPT, and prompt engineering for chat GPT for those who want to learn more. I think I said that twice, but that's fine. You get the idea of what it is, but you could take a look at that. And, and there's also YouTube videos of you giving this a similar idea to this, but a lo longer course on this. I mean, it's really incredible. I got to watch it before we sat down today and blown away by the other examples that you and your colleagues gave. So thanks for doing that. Thank you. Um, great. And uh, just as a reminder, join us on July 13th at 1 p.m. Eastern time for part two. We're going to be talking about investment implications and opportunities of AI with our very own CIO technology sector analyst and my friend, Kevin Deneen. We're going to discuss, of course, financial investment implications and also hopefully some opportunities. You can find more information on our website, ubs.com forward slash summer of AI, all one word. And again, mark your calendar for all the events that you'll find on that website as part of this summer of AI series. Thanks everybody. I'm Anthony Pastore from New York City. See you on July, turn uh, July 13th. See you soon. Thanks everybody. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only.
As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 